Blog Talk Radio. Hi, everyone. This is Denise Brown, your host of Your Caregiving Journey, a talk show that helps you as you help family members and friends. It's Monday, October 30th. It's 10 a.m. Central Time, and we're live out of Chicago. Thank you so much for joining me. As you know, on Monday mornings, we gather to start off our day and our week with good company. And in just a few moments, one of our presenters at our National Caregiving Conference will join me to talk about her two presentations. A couple updates for you. Yesterday, I, I updated the website with a couple blog posts that I'd love for you to participate in with your thoughts when you can. The first one is, what advice wasn't meant for you? And it's really based on a commercial that you've probably seen on TV. It's a financial services company. A customer is talking to her financial planner, complaining about advice she's received. And he says, well, that wasn't meant for you. And I thought, oh, that is such a brilliant way of looking at advice (laughs) that you receive that you think that is just not going to work. It wasn't meant for you. So that's why it's good not to take it because it's not meant for you. So some of our Visitors and members of caregiving.com have been posting about the advice they received that wasn't meant for them. And I find it interesting and comforting to read the comments because I think you'll relate to what others are saying. And I'd love for you to insert your comments and experiences into that conversation. And the other one is our latest six-word story, which is, What's scary about caregiving? You can write as many six-word stories about that as you'd like. And it's stories that reflect today and tomorrow, meaning during caregiving and after caregiving. So when you can, stop by caregiving.com, tell us. And six-word stories are the current conversations that are going on. And I'd love for you to share and add your perspective. And then one other request. So a website called OpenIDEO runs regular challenges in which they ask for a community, and anybody can be a part of the community, to solve a pressing problem. And the problem that they've selected now is how do we help and support family caregivers of persons with dementia? So I posted an idea. And my idea is something that I've been working on for years and still continue to work on. I still look for opportunities to make it happen. And it's basically paying for content. So family caregivers and former family caregivers who blog on caregiving.com, who host podcasts and video chats, get reimbursed for what it is that they create because what they create is helpful and supportive. We know that caregiving costs, so it jeopardizes your own financial future. So why not pay you for the content you're creating. So that's my idea, something I've been working on since 2012. I've been trying to get this to to get some feet and go somewhere. So when you go to caregiving.com, look for the headline that talks about paying family caregivers for content. Click on that, and then you'll see information about where to go to see my full idea and to really leave a comment of support around that idea. A couple of the members of caregiving.com did that for me yesterday, which I'm so grateful for. So if you could add your comment of support, that would be awesome. I would really be grateful for that. 
So again, that's on caregiving.com. It's the headline that talks about paying family caregivers for content. Okay, those are the updates. So as you know, since I think around August, we started inviting panelists and presenters who will be at the National Caregiving Conference to join me on Monday morning to talk about their presentations. And so I'm delighted to have Gail Corella Alba join us this morning. She has two presentations at the conference, and she's also leading a yoga session in our respite room for caries. So good morning, Gail. Thank you so much for being with us today. Good morning, Denise. Thank you so much for inviting me and for doing this for all of us. So you were at last year's conference, and you Mm -hmm. led us off last year with some really deep breathing and some really calming exercises. So that's how we started last year on Saturday morning. And so you've expanded it and really into a couple sessions and then yoga in our respite room for caries. So why was it important for you to be a part of this year's conference? Uh, that's a great question. But And it enters several different domains for me. One is the work that I offered at the conference, for example, last year really was a bridge for me of taking something that was so important uh, that I share in life and so simple in so many ways that people often just don't think of the very things that are right there in their basket that they could hold on to and have, and particularly in deep times of stress. Um, To bring that to the conference of caregivers is very significant to me just from my sole desire. The second thing is that I believe that when we come together at an event as auspicious as a conference, and it's national, it really has the potential for changing literally the global economy, the national economy, um, aging in America, it, the tangents that reach and the tendrils into how we are literally moving forward are not just caregivers, but caregivers are at the center of it. We do what we do. There's millions of us. We do what we do for free. That affects everything, everything in the economy, everything in the healthcare system, everything in the care system. And I think the people that aren't really involved in it don't realize what, what that is, what it means. Uh, so I think that we are on the cusp of uh, national change. You know what's so interesting, too, as you talk about that? There are so many layers of purpose at the conference. Certainly it's connecting as a community. So over the past couple months, our guests on this podcast talk about how they connected with a group of people last year and then kept in touch over the year. So not only do you connect during those two days, but you keep the connections and support over the next 12 months. I mean, how fantastic is that? So certainly it's the connection to the community. It's also about possibilities. So during caregiving, you often have to say no. And so this is an opportunity to say yes. So you're saying yes by becoming a presenter or panelist. And the majority, I would say just about 90% of those who are presenting at the conference are caring for a family member or have previously cared for a family member. So it's talking about the experience from those who are in the experience or have had the experience. 
It's that pure education that's so critical. And then it's our time to educate the greater community, the healthcare system, our neighborhoods, our houses of worship, our employers about the caregiving experience, what's involved and why it's so important. So when you think about it, there are so many layers of why the conference is important that it becomes this really critical meeting. It's not just a place where we get together and attend sessions. It's a place that we get together and really connect to something bigger and more important than just the group that's getting together because we're going to change things for everyone. I completely agree. It's almost like the microcosm and the macrocosm, and they're existing at once, and any of the attendees or speakers can enter the conversation from where they're feeling in the moment. It might be that you're making a friend or you're making a lifelong friend or you're connecting with another person who has a similarly moving experience to your own in caregiving. And I'm finding for most of us, it really takes one to know one. It's such an interesting journey that you can hardly explain to someone who isn't, particularly to someone who isn't even thinking in that direction. They're thinking, oh, caregivers, like, oh, I can bring, like, uh, dinner to my neighbor. No, this isn't that, uh, you know, when you're full on with it. So being with each other is really significant. Feeling understood is significant. Being seen is significant. And, and whether you're thinking the thought or not, you are part of the wave. That's literally moving our cultural community, financial community, workplace communities, uh, political communities forward. You're doing that, even though you're there to meet a friend. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Your presence is so critical. And what's great about the conference is your presence could be in Chicago or it could be virtually. You could watch the conference virtually. And that's just as important as getting together in Chicago. You can connect to a community in the chat rooms, and you get connected to the greater purpose that the conference serves. So what I think is interesting as we talk about one of your sessions, Gail, is that the conference is about giving a voice to what the experience is like, and one of your sessions is about our voice. And I find it interesting to think about how you learned how important your voice is during caregiving. Can you tell us a little bit about when you realized why your voice is so important? Yes, I will. I I want to frame that also that, for me, I come to all my work with a win-win, usually a win-win-win. There's three parties involved, um, self, other, and then the larger community. So what's a win-win-win in relationship with what I'm going to say about the caregiver finding their voice? Um, and part of it is that the, the medical community, as much as they may wish to serve, have the intention to serve, um, have the call to serve, their oath is to serve. Often in their busyness, they are um, dropping the ball. So without a blame to that idea that the ball is being dropped, but a, a shining a light on the ball is being dropped, often it's the family caregiver. And for me in my life, it was me as the family caregiver, realizing that I had to you know, the first time it happened, it was once, but then it was the 15th time it happened that I had to really speak up and say, unbeknownst to myself, that I was going to have to say, 
whoa, 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 I need more time. Or should you, am I really going to be responsible for that? Or do you mean that you're, I'm going to be told something without being asked when it's really asked that's needed? So I'll give you two examples. One, and I had mentioned this before, I was asked by a friend who had facial surgery. She was told to um, have someone sleep over with her, someone who kind of was on the ball and knew what they were doing a little bit with taking care of somebody who might be basically under the weather. Well, she came home, she was way more than under the weather. She was in hardly able, to, she couldn't lie down. She was in terrible pain. We spent the whole night wide awake. And um, that lasted through another day. And by the third day, her surgeon called and said, who's ever taken care of you? Put her on the phone. My friend put me on the phone. And unbeknownst to me, he said, you're going to be the one to do unwrap her. And I looked at this person with this big, giant, basically styrofoam helmet on, wrapped like a mummy, and said, I don't even know where to begin with that. And he said, don't you worry, I'll walk you through it. And it was a horrific experience for me. The, the lower I got into the depths of now trying to get this thing off her head that was stuck on there with, with blood and scabbing and whatever else was happening, and me not ever having seen this kind of open-wounded stitching staples kind of thing. Anyway, that whole story is, should I have been there? I didn't know whether or not to say yes or no. This is the part that my new experience is to report to caregivers is you may wind up in experiences where you're not going to know to say no. And you're not going to know maybe to say yes. But the most important part for me to share isn't the details of my own experience, but that you, the caregiver, need to go into this job realizing that it's going to be probable, that you're going to be questioning and it might not be comfortable for you. And maybe in your history, you weren't that kind of person. Maybe in your history, you just took the advice and you said, okay. Or maybe you're just expecting that you're going to be getting all the information that you need. And literally, here's news, you're probably not. So at least you can now go in as a caregiver and be aware, number one, you need to look at whatever information you're getting on what you're supposed to be doing for the person that you're caring for and really review it. And if you're not feeling like it's enough, it's probably true that it's not enough rather than you questioning yourself and thinking, Oh, maybe I'm just not getting it. It's probable that, you know, the authorities that are giving it to you literally haven't given you either enough time or enough information. And I've been digging up some research about that, that I'll, um, that's medically oriented, doctor oriented, I'm coming up and saying that informed consent is often not informed. So the caregiver then, the regular layperson, becomes the person that has to find a voice and say to the team, wait a second, this isn't working for all of us. It will help to, it will dynamically help. You know, we talk about the um, financial cost of all of this. Um, when people are sent back, you know, reentry into into the hospital or into care because they were released too soon. That's a big issue right now, a financial issue in the medical model. Um, I believe that caregivers are poised beautifully to be the ones to say we need more or we need less. Another story, 
that I had was with my son in a trauma center when a male nurse said to me, oh, by the way, they're going to come in tomorrow and, um, and ask you to sign a paper for a pharmacological protocol that they're going to do tomorrow. So uh, they're going to give you the papers in the morning. And I was looking down at something that he had given me previously. I was reading it. And then he snapped at me and he said, are you listening to me? I thought, oh, (laughs) the nerve. And I lifted my head from what I was reading. And he was shaking his head no. So we spoke uh, subsequently about it. But he wasn't in a position to say to me, look, you're going to be given a piece of paper. And they're going to tell you to sign it. They're not going to frame it. Like, this is, this is a test, and this is uh, something that hasn't been tried before, and you're really going to need to dig, dive deep in the paperwork. So that's, there's a difference between being told to sign something and being informed to uh, look over something and make an informed decision, and they're very different. Yeah. So and that, I, yeah. In I'm my sorry, experience with... Oh yeah, with my dad, it's very it's very interesting to talk to you about this because this has been something that happened in my family when my dad had major surgery. He he has he had bladder cancer that spread, so he had his bladder, his kidney, his ureter, and then he had unrelated prostate cancer, so his prostate was removed as well in the same surgery. And in the prep for the surgery, we had meetings with the oncologist, the surgeon, his nurse, and they would say to my dad, your life will be normal after this surgery. Now, my dad mm-hmm. went through a series of tests to make sure that he, was, he would survive the surgery. So he was 82 when he had the surgery. Flying colors through all the tests. He was a changed man after the surgery. They did not supri- provide emotional support for him after losing these major organs and mm-hmm. losing something that was common to his life, which was going to the bathroom. It all changed. And then being dependent on others to help him with going to the bathroom because now he wears a bag to collect his urine because he doesn't have a mm. bladder. And for my mom and I, the nurse would say, we'll teach you how to do this. It'll be fine. It's no big deal. Well, you know what? It was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal. And when we went from the, ho- oh, from the hospital, we were nervous wrecks. We were nervous wrecks. And, I mean, we just kept calling the home health nurse wondering, when are you coming? When are you coming? And there was one night when my dad started taking um, LASIK because he was just filled with water. And they prescribed it at the doctor's office. And in the doctor's office, I thought, I have to remind him he has to, he has to empty his bag more often because he's going to fill that bag with all that extra fluid. And I completely forgot. Now, the doctor didn't tell him that either. And I forgot to tell him. And then at 10 o'clock at night, Basically, his bag just exploded, and we were like, oh, no, what do we do? What do we do? So I called the home health nurse, and she was trying to help me figure out what to do. She came the next morning and changed him, but it was a disaster. And then a couple days later, the same thing happened. His bag started leaking. Again, it it always happens at night, right? It's 10 o'clock at night. I know that the nurse is not going to come, so it's just get in there and do it. So that's what I did. I just said, okay. So that was the first time I changed his bag was because there was an emergency and there was no help from the healthcare system. So they discharge us with all this stuff to do 
And it is nerve-wracking. And we're adjusting to all these emotional situations. You know, when my dad got home from the hospital, he was still throwing up. He still didn't feel good. And we were just like, oh, my gosh, what happened? What happened here? It was shocking because they kept telling us everything will be okay. You'll go back to life as it was. And that simply was not true at all. And so how much they minimize what's going to happen is not helpful. It is not helpful. So I love that you're reminding us to be that voice. And it's starting to get us to think about situations beyond what we think, right? So we hear life will be the same. I think it's important for us to ask those follow-up questions. You know what? And actually we did. We said, will he be able to golf? Absolutely. My dad has never golfed again. It's Mm -hmm. just stuff like that that really kind of gets to you. Why not just be upfront and honest? Why not connect the family system to emotional support? And why not help us figure out what's going to happen next, which is the bag is going to leak. If you prescribe LASIK, he's going to fill the bag faster. He's going to need to change it more, you know, sooner. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So So what you're talking about is so critical. And I think that um, that it may be true. So here's another thing that when I hear your story, I would imagine that most people at the conference being caregivers, and especially if they're well into it, would have stories, would all have a story. But where do we as the caregiver fit into that? I was pushed, I would say, in a way, each of the silos, the medical system, is filled with silos. Even when they all say they're working together, it's not a very high-performance team. I actually went back to school to study organizational development because I was of these issues. And I thought there's just got to be words for this or a better way to look at it. But there really isn't a person who's the, um, I'll call it maybe like the caregiver advocate. There's patient advocate, there's a social worker, there's the PT, OT, nurse, nurses, head nurse, doctors, specialists, uh, anesthesiologist. We have all these people. But I don't know that there is a person, you or me, in the team system called a team member who is advocating for the caregiver. I was told routinely, go to the social worker, she'll take care of it. And she didn't really, she had other work to do. And she wasn't a caregiver. If she wasn't a caregiver herself, she didn't really know what I was talking about. So I think there's a space for a whole new profession. Well, and that's our certified caregiving consultant. I mean, that's ultimately what the goal is, that Mm -hmm. there are certified caregiving consultants in the hospital, not only in the Mm -hmm. hospital, but in the emergency room. So I wrote a series of articles about what could be, it's called Imagine, And one of my imagined posts was about the emergency room. The patient is admitted, the caree is admitted. While they're attending to the caree, a certified caregiving consultant pulls the family caregiver aside and says, here's a snack, here's some coffee. Let's talk about how you're doing. Perfect. Yes, right? I mean, isn't that the way it should be? Think Mm -hmm. about it. Your caree during an emergency room is having tests, and sometimes it's side of their little cubicle in the emergency room. Why not use that time to connect to a family caregiver? But the carry is well taken care of in the emergency room, but the family caregiver isn't. So why isn't there a process to make that happen? Something happened that brought them to the emergency room. 
let's talk about mm-hmm. it. And then let's talk about what's going to happen during the hospitalization. And then let's figure out what's going to happen when you get home. And that does not happen during the discharge process right now. It just doesn't. The discharge process is a nightmare. It's ineffective. It's inefficient. So why not connect that family caregiver to a certified caregiving consultant at time of admission, which includes at time that they enter the emergency room? It, there, is, there is time that is wasted that can be captured and really become useful. Why not take advantage of it? Well, that's what I want to get my back behind. That's where I feel my best uh, intention and my best passion is in this stage of my life and career is to, is to advocate for that in whatever possible way that I can. And I Needed, think recognized, the, and awesome. Yeah, and the opportunity is there, right, because we see it. We see it within the healthcare system. We see it within our demographics. And we see it within our own overall health. We know that the younger population is facing significant health issues. Caregiving is not just about someone who gets older. It is part of our life. We know that family caregivers care for parents, spouse, and children at the same time. That is not an unusual experience. And because of that, we are deeply involved in the health of others. And the healthcare system, as we all know, depends on us. So why not have them provide support for us as well? One of the things that I did that I imagine was unusual, but it shouldn't be, this is part of my message as well, is I recognized when I saw the idea of team dynamics and that the caregiving individual, the significant other, was pretty routinely being left out. Uh, you know, brought in for like a monthly discussion often, uh, the team discussion, but not even needed. That discussion could go on without you there. As long as when when you're talking rehab, let's say, the PT and the OT and the social worker and the, the staff would have to show up at a monthly meeting for the patient, but you could be there or not, you, the caregiver. Well, of course, I was always there. But I found that my... Um, Awareness before I even knew that I had to find the kind of voice that I found was that I had a notebook with me 24-7. The closest I found to that was on the Penn Med website uh, on their cancer care area. And, they, you know, there's a little tiny section, what's the caregiver to do? And one of the things that that section speaks of is be prepared to take notes and always have a notebook. But it's a little bit dumbed down. Like you're just going to kind of show up at an appointment and maybe be an assistant by noting things that you might forget. I found that if I addressed the part of looking somewhat professional, very professional often, and went into whatever appointment that I went into and opened up my iPad and just said, oh, hold on a minute, I'm just taking some notes, and put my little readers on and started typing, wow. Wow. I I could tell you a hundred reasons why I think the atmosphere in the room changed, but what I can report is what I know the atmosphere in the room changed. So here I was looking like I'm collecting data, like I'm recording the data. It's not going to be he said, she said. I'm writing it down. I would ask for, um, can you please spell that? Or what's the name again of that? Or how many milligrams was that? Or how many times a day was that? And because of that, I also, 
I can give you a dozen different times that I um, corrected errors. So I'm not one of those people that had to go and say that my loved one had an issue with a medical error. In my experience of half a dozen carees, pretty serious, each one, I don't have medical error, but I do have catching a lot of stories on catching the possibility of medical error, usually related to medication, times of day, numbers of times per day or week, and amount. That's so one of the other ideas that I, I think you commented on, which is why don't we wear lab coats? If we're a, if we're a member of the healthcare team, if we're the ones that are providing that health care 24-7, 365 days a year, we're a member of the team, we're a critical member of the team, why don't we dress the part? And I think that's a conversation that we're going to continue. We were trying to figure out how to continue it at the conference. I'm not sure if we're going to be able to do it at the conference, but it certainly is something that we're going to keep continue to talk about. How do we ensure that our invaluable position is respected and included as we care for our carries? Yeah. I think that, and I think that that's what we're all in the process of. Um, and you yeah. have done that with your certification. It's some, it needs some kind of standardization because we're all individuals. We're from every uh, town and city and uh, state in the nation. We don't all speak with the same amount of, there's, there's no uh, framework that's the exact same. We don't all have the exact same education with the exact same language with the exact same anything. So taking such a disparate group of individuals and trying to standardize how we can all um, have a certain quality of experience. I call it, you know, team member, or I actually think the caregiver is the center of the hub of the team. And a high-performance team, everybody communicates with everybody, but often one person is sort of holding the space for doing, making sure that the communication goes fully around the circle. You know, in my experience, it's the caregiver. Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, because we are out of time, and this was awesome. So, Gail, thank you so much for being with us today. You are This was a pleasure. Yeah, and I just want to remind everyone that you'll be able to connect with Gail during the National Caregiving Conference, which is November 10th and 11th in Chicago, and Gail's presentations are Keeping You in the Circle of Care, and a caregiver's voice. So see you in a week and a half, Gail. Thanks, Denise. Looking forward. And thanks, everybody, so much for listening. I'm Denise Brown. Be sure to stop by caregiving.com. Let us know how you're doing because we always love to know. Take care. Bye-bye.